welcome to the Recombobulator Lab with Jason Gramnai and Chris Dominic. Dominic J. Chris. Uh, I can't do it. I can't do it backwards. <laughs> The, you with the hyphenated back name, I'm like Nigram. Uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm no. sorry. How are you? No, I'm I'm doing well, man. Good. I'm I'm, I'm having a good time. Um, it is Saturday afternoon, which means hey, it's Sunday morning for you. Did you have a good time it last night? It is 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. It's a great blue sky summer day, and I had a I had a great morning because I had a great night, and I had a great night because we we aren't COVID restricted, and uh, and I, I had a night um with my new favorite friend um vodka. Rose. <laughs> oh you do sound chipper yeah so for, uh wow so that stuff really is working for you isn't it well and it's it's organic I, it's gluten-free it's kosher um not tested on animals i could not help but notice that there was a photograph that you sent me of a case of vodka O shortly after we mentioned that on the last show any is there any particular reason why that might have happened that might be because the company is so impressed so excited by what you and I are doing that they sent some appreciation in, in oh, what pro and I thought you know what I better have a crack at this stuff outstanding it's always good to find an alcohol that doesn't leave um, leave a, a mark leave a mark shall we say <laughs> on the on the following day because you know you've got to operate we've got kids to yeah. get to yeah. things and bunches yeah. to attend so this wow. this this is a fantastic drink I'm loving it and it's fantastic yeah. the uh, three elements of it you've got the vodka love it organic gluten free mm-hmm. not tested on animals kosher then you've got the uh, the lime which obviously resolves the um the scurvy issue now as Australians uh, yeah. we're very aware of scurvy yeah. and then the, the third element is the soda which is a naturally hydrating um, element so I am chipper that is, that, that's a, that's like a good runner cocktail yes right? like and I, a, yeah yeah and I went running this morning so very good oh, yeah man. I'm yeah. really happy for you that, yeah, that no. sounds great and, and if I were there you know we could enjoy it together I know. Uh, too bad they don't have that stuff around here we're gonna have to figure that out we will okay. have to that's the next project now how are you what's going on in for uh, you you know I'm doing great I we're off to a good start this year there's some projects that are cooking right now that i'm really happy about great clients that just love working with how about you what's what's yeah well all's well in the the world of g diapers we've got things cooking there but um I do a little bit of work at a university at an incubator helping social enterprises, mm. companies that are trying to do good in the world. And yeah, I'm working yeah. with a really cool company called Mill Pass, and we're launching in the US. And I would love for our listeners to put their thinking caps on and see if there are some local restaurants in their area anywhere in the US who would like to be kind of pioneer partners with this business. And it's a very simple concept. Mm. Right now in America, you've mm. got 50 million food insecure Americans. You've got food banks that are really, really struggling with, you know, you've got COVID has increased the food insecurity. Food banks can only do so much. 30% of all the food we buy, we throw out. And 27% of the 30% is end of day food in restaurants, which is just, they just have to throw it out. And so this business, Meal Pass is an app and we partner with food charities and it gives those folks who are food insecure the opportunity to find and secure a meal at a local restaurant of their choice. And the the really cool thing is the, obviously you're feeding America, which is great. You're reducing food waste and and the restaurant gets a really fabulous tax advantage. So everyone's a winner. That's so right up your alley. That, I'm that is, loving that it. Is, you're you're going you're gonna to kill with that. Uh, can I ask, though, anybody that I might know in Portland that you've talked to? I'm just, I, I, I got Yeah, it. so we've worked with the Oregon Food, uh, Oregon Restaurant <laughs> and Lodging Association, Orla. They're oh, fantastic. Okay. 
And they've put us in touch with some great uh, outlets who we're just starting discussions with. Uh, Miss Delta, which is a fantastic restaurant. Laurelhurst mm. Market, which is fabulous. Oh, yeah. Uh, this big, place is amazing. Big's Chicken. Uh, yeah. Reverend's, yeah. you know, Reverend's Barbecue. Uh, it's yeah. in Selwood. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. 808, which is a fantastic okay. one. Pork and Not, beautiful. Yeah, that's um, very close to my heart. Yeah, Cheryl's on 12th. Yes. Uh, Bokey oh, Bowl and Crisp Salad. So we've just started small. In Australia, in the in a, in the three month kind of peak of the pandemic, we got five hundred restaurants on the platform. We served fifty five thousand meals, and we saved about one hundred and one thousand pounds of food waste. So we think we can emulate that in the US. And the US demand is huge. We're really just passionate about feeding those in need and um, reducing uh, food waste. So. If, if yeah. our listeners want to help, what do they do? Jason? Can they can they message you, me? How does that work? They, well, yeah, we, they can grab on. They can go onto any piece of social media and get probably to you, right? I mean, you're on Instagram and you're on Twitter and you're on Facebook and yeah, if yeah, uh, yeah. LinkedIn, yes, uh, all of that stuff. So what am I on Instagram? I'm just Jason.gn. Maybe if we just focus yeah. on Instagram. So yeah, if sure, yeah, okay. We and, and right. if yeah, if you've got a favorite restaurant, you're like, you know what? I think that would be so great in my community. Please message me uh, at jason.gn and we can get your restaurant up and running. Awesome. That's outstanding. That's great. Okay. Well, hey, Jason, you know, we talked with Peter Carlin and I'm looking forward to getting over to that interview. But in the meantime, I've got a music related quiz for you. Oh, this is great because my track record of quizzes with you is like awful and I'm not a music person, but keep going. (laughs) Yeah. So, so admittedly. Uh, you know, your your long time your your all time track record is fairly ta- terrible, but your last one was pretty good though. I think you got five out of six. You love burying so, me every week. Yeah, it's really, it's fun. It's really I it's really good. You got all the vodka. Yeah. I'm hungover. No, but I'm not why hungover. Could, why couldn't we plug somebody that had you know international liquor distribution? Anyway, okay, here we go. Um, this this is kind of a sucker punch. Which band from Australia is among the top ten selling bands? Midnight Oil. ACDC. Oh, you win! Yes. <laughs> Darn it! I was I was getting ready to go bang, and then they, and then you and I, I you finally answered me. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, you win. All right, ACDC, 75 million, which is interesting wow. because we got a listener. It wasn't, it was really a comment, a listener comment from Matt Pope of California. Popey, where he, love his work. Yeah, Pope Popey, who said, you know, it's pretty obvious that Jason blew it on his top five of Australia because he missed ACDC, which is kind of funny considering <laughs> we now know they're in the top 10 of all selling bands. I have to tell you, I was surprised by that. I I, I love me some ACDC growing up. But you told me one time that you called them something different in australia akadaka what yeah because it's with so so you're the, the guy pope yeah matt pope and i go way yeah. back yeah so he was like a, yeah we grew up together i I, yeah. I commented back to him as a total stranger and just said thanks mate thanks popey and then i explained that in australia we just put a y after everything so pope becomes popey okay. it's so it, everything what would anyway, I be? What, what, what uh, would I be? chriso chrissy chris anyway we y or uh, okay. an o but with akadaka so acdc we just kind of say that's a bit boring but if we ran it all together as a word acdc if you put an a after the c it's aca okay aka and then you put an a it's a long and complicated linguistic nightmare but yeah he's there akadaka <laughs> no, normally i would say you're really weird for that but you know they're your band you get to do that Thank so you. anyway 
Can yeah. I tell you a quick random story? Of course. Okay, uh, Snooty <laughs> Snooty Golf Club down the road, which I, you might have come mm-hmm. with us to. I can't remember. Snooty think, Golf Club. I think we dropped off one of your boys there. Okay, like so yeah. my brother-in-law, who's from Portland, Oregon, uh, who married my sister there in Sydney, he's in the change room at the Snooty Golf Club, and uh, the actor. We're gonna love hearing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the ACDC. Um, not the whole band. I mean, they're they're golfers. They're mad golfers. That's amazing. Oh, they're, aren't they like Scottish? Yeah, I mean they're like, I mean like they're, they're Australians, but they're like Scottish Australians. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, you don't get named Angus if you're you know anything but Scottish, pretty much. No, exactly. So Angus, yeah. Malcolm Young. That's right. It was Malcolm Young and Angus Young, their yeah. brothers. They're yeah. both mad golfers. Wow. Okay. Angus Young. They, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Back to the quiz. <sighs> what is the? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Who is the top-selling American recording artist? See, I went. I went Australian. Whoa. Oh yeah. gosh! Who is um, it? Who is it? Michael Jackson, Elvis Presley, jeez, Taylor Swift, Garth Brooks. What? What's Garth? Do you even Brooks? know who that is? Who's Garth? Yeah, he's, a, he's a country guy. Oh please! Yeah. Is that even music? Yeah. Well, come on now. You're the one with the Australian country guy who's who married, married to Nicole, Nicole Kidman. Kidman. Yeah, yeah. yeah I but even we know sent him to you because we don't have an industry here, dude. Nobody wants to listen to that. No. Nah, huh? What's his name? I can't what are what are, the, what are the rural folks listen to down there? Uh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> Okay, never mind. Okay, that's funny. All right, all right. Here, so who is the number one recording artist of all time in terms of sales? Oh wow, like globally, like anybody of ever. all time at all mm. ever, right? So I keep for some, I'm stuck on Michael Jackson for some reason. I can't get off him or Elvis Presley. But mm, okay, they're both they're both very high up there, but they are okay. not this this entity. I have no idea. It's the Beatles. Oh, as a band. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, 183 million units. Wow. Yeah. Okay, next question. Which other Australian artist, other than ACDC, was in the top 50? Well, I keep thinking of Midnight Oil because they're awesome. Um, I'll give you another shot because that's not true. Damn. Uh, a band or an individual? Like them, right, they were they were huge when I was growing up too. Uh, just any. I mean, come on. Well, who are the t- <laughs> who would who would <laughs> you're trying to hard? What what who's just come? Who comes to mind when it comes to big Australian bands? Not many. That we don't export well, do we? Oh, I think you just got the right answer because the answer is nobody. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did it as a trick question. That is you got so it right. Mean. And oh, then I thought brutal. you thought split ends or crowded house might have been yeah. Australian. But no, see, I was gonna, I was gonna try that joke actually, <laughs> but then I just couldn't figure out how to work it in. You're but so I, I, have, I have done that so many times. When I find out somebody's Australian, at some point in the evening, I will say, "You know, my favorite Australian band's Crowded House." Yeah. And then they'll just look at me and go, "They're New Zealand." Okay. I like, I like our favorite actors, Russell Crowe, <laughs> and he's yeah. also a Kiwi. Oh, that's fine. You know, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Here we go. This is the this is the last one, and it's the toughest one, which is why it's more fun. Who has sold the most units? Rank order these, okay? And you got to say like four, three, two, one. Yeah, yeah. One, one being most. Okay. Ready? Yep. Madonna, mm-hmm. The Rolling Stones, yep. Bruce Springsteen, ACDC. Okay. Number one is that's impossible. Madonna, the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, ACDC. Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, Madonna, Akadaka. Okay. So who did you say was at the top here? <laughs> Rolling Stones? It's ACDC. 
No way. I swear to God. Wow. There you go. They sold 75 million units. Okay, who's number two? Rolling Stones. You are correct. Yes. Sorry. Okay, number who's number three? It's, it's just a, it's it's either over either or no Bruce Bruce. Bruce oh Bruce. really? Damn. And then and then Madonna. Anyway, yeah. okay, yeah. So yeah, Bruce Springsteen sold 65.5 million units, and Madonna has sold 64.5 million units. And wow. So yeah, that kind of sales is a completely you know that's a that's a wild number, and that's getting into the realm of what we're going to talk about today with Peter Carlin. So should we just go to the interview, Jason? Yeah, what an interview. Wow. It's a complete neophyte. I have no idea about music. That was the most fascinating conversation. Yeah. Yeah, let's go. All right. So here's Peter Ames Carlin uh, talking about his latest book, Sonic Boom. We're here with writer Peter Ames Carlin, whose body of work includes biographies of the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson, Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, and Paul Simon. He has a brand new book entitled Sonic Boom, the history of the rise of Warner Brothers records that will be released on January 19th. Author Buzz Bisinger says about Peter, if there's anyone who writes about modern musicians better than Carlin does, I don't know who it could possibly be. Welcome to the show, Peter. Hello. It's good to be here. Awesome. Can I quickly ask, where is here for you? I'm in Portland, Oregon, probably about a mile away from Chris. Yeah, Got it. That's okay. right. <laughs> but so, of course, we're in our homes talking on the computer. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I just wanted to, so we are 10,000 miles away, you and me. Got it. But well, <laughs> um, I want to dive in. Your body of work is so much focused on music, but I had noticed that you had a reputation back in the day for scrapping with Fox News host Bill O'Reilly. Can you share a little bit about that? Sorry to start controversially, but I'm so interested. Yeah. You know, it's weird for everything I've done in the course of my career. That's like the, the thing. It's like the first line in my obituary. <laughs> I was a TV critic for about eight years or so. And then, and I can't even remember when it was, but he got into a uh, kerfuffle with Al Franken, who I, I can't even remember if he was a senator by then or not. And it had to do with O'Reilly's assertion that he had won a Peabody Award with uh, Inside Edition, uh, which was this kind of tabloid TV show that he was the anchor of for some time. But the only problem was is that Inside Edition never won a Peabody, and the award that they did win, which was similar to a Peabody, they won a couple years after he left. So it was all a bunch of hooey, and Al Franken outed him on that. And right around that time, O'Reilly came and did like a speech here in town that I had to cover. And I wrote a piece about him, which was actually quite generous. I remember it was the day after I'd gotten back from like a two-week vacation, and I was feeling really mellow and cheerful. So I didn't like eviscerate him like I might have done in a more stressful moment. But nevertheless, it was, the fact that I had mentioned the Franken conflict, he ended up calling the editor-in-chief of the Oregonian after leaving a kind of an ugly voicemail for me and basically ordering her to retract the piece. But the only problem with that was that the piece was accurate. But just the fact that this guy who fancies himself, you know, as this kind of blue collar, done good hero, like, of course, the first thing he did was go to the biggest boss there was and try to weigh in on her, yeah. you know. And bully and, them. Uh, and, may, and bully the poor working man, a.k.a. Yeah. me. <laughs> into uh you know and so then we had a little back and forth and he said mean things about me on the radio and and i was quite tickled by that actually and also on his tv show he had to put a picture you actually of got time up. on his tv show like just him looking into the camera and going damn you yeah Peter. 
with a picture of me in the background. Oh my god! And the words "Truth Police" underneath it, which oh. I guess was the anyway. So that's that was our little. You know, it was such it was such fun working with him. You know, I mean, it was a little. I I, I can only imagine what a slow news day it was. I mean, please do bear in mind that this was in August when generally nothing happens in the right. world because everyone's on vacation. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, could you imagine the meeting before the show? Like, what the hell are we going to do today? It's like, well, this kid in Oregon pissed me off. <laughs> Let's put Carlin's picture up there. I want to say yeah. that. That guy? Are you yeah. sure? Yeah. There's nothing else? Nope. That so. is so good. Well, thank oh, you for man. enlightening me. That that helps me a lot. Having lived in That's America in Portland for 10 years and being there when Bill O'Reilly was still on fire. Um, and <laughs> I remember Al Franken made the transition from kind of entertainer over into politics early on in my state. Yeah. But, uh, that is amazing. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> my pleasure. Peter, your, uh, your best-selling book, Bruce, involved a development process where you shadowed Bruce Springsteen for quite some time. And yeah, I don't think I've ever plugged you for for stories, but I, now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, like what what of the stories that you could tell? Like what? Because I know there's probably some you can't. Like what 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 would be a good one? You know, I mean, I've been a huge fan of his work going back to 1978 when I was about 15. You know, I Darkness on the Edge of Town had just come out, and that was the record that really, you know, that I fell in love with, and mm-hmm. and then fell in love with his work, and so I've been a fan for a super duper long time and so then you know many many years later I found myself hanging out with him a little bit you know and I think the first day that we did really you know a really long interview he uh, you know the day we really sort of had a bunch of time together he was like well come over with me to my studio and he played for me what was then his new but unreleased album that didn't even have a final mix yet and that was the uh, Wrecking Ball record so we sat in his studio at the control panel and just him next to me with you know the stacks of lyrics in front of us and so i got to hear like about an hour and 10 minutes of brand new unreleased springsteen music with him sitting you know like a foot away from me and that was really a cool experience <laughs> you know oh, i mean yeah. that was kind of otherworldly and and uh, i remember there was one lyric that you know i was i was listening to it and following along it's got this one line on it where he says freedom is a dirty shirt which was his way of saying that like freedom comes from working hard you know and i i saw that and i thought that's a great line and so i just gave him i just cuffed him on the shoulder and gave him a big thumbs up you know which i thought was kind of a weird thing to do (laughs) since i'm he's bruce springsteen and i'm just me and but on the other hand i know artists just as you know creative people well enough to know that no matter how successful they are, they still like to be complimented, you know? Oh, yeah. And, oh, and yeah. so after I, I, I slugged him on the shoulder and I gave him a thumbs up on that and pointed to the line like, yeah, that's a great line. And his face just cracked open in this really nice smile that mm-hmm. made me feel like, I'm glad that I could make him feel good for just like a couple minutes, you know, for a few seconds on end there. So, yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah. Awesome. yeah, that's extraordinary. We have goals and objectives on this podcast, but we regularly forget them. And this is going to go that way for a second here. I did want to ask you about your book on Stacey Allison as the first woman to summit Mount Everest. What drew you to that subject area, given that, uh, you know, you've got this world of music? What what took you to Stacey's story? Oh, gosh. You know, I did that a long, long time ago in the early 90s. And I was, you know, just 
just a freelance writer at the time, which is what I am now, you know, <laughs> so nothing's changed. But I, what happened was I had written a book, I, uh, like a humor book, and then I had some pieces out there. And I think just a friend of a friend or something introduced me to her and because she w wanted to write this memoir. And that was a cool opportunity. And we met and hit it off. You know, I grew up in Seattle and, and Jim Whitaker, the guy that first, the first American, I think, to summit Mount Everest lived in my neighborhood, like around the corner. So, mm. uh, you know, so mountaineering, you know, and, and growing up in, in the Pacific Northwest where you got the Cascade Mountains and the Olympic Mountains and, you know, there and you, you're living in the shadow of Mount Rainier, you know, mountaineering was something that I was aware of, you know, we hiked and did all that stuff. Once I got, you know, I didn't know a lot about that subculture, but once I got into it with her, I was super, you know, obviously it, it's really engaging and fascinating and, you know, and then, and then I ended up just to write about it. I, I climbed Mount Hood with her, um, oh, wow. which was great fun, except for the fact that, you know, it's like we're climbing up, you know, sort of through, you know, kind of from Timberline Lodge there, sort of up the ski area, you know, and by then it was, I think it was June or July when we did it. So there was no skiing taking place, but there was still enough snow. I just remember that I found it really hard to keep up with her because she had this economy of movement. That, you know, mm. because she was so expert at climbing and walking and moving through snow that, you know, I, and I was just trying desperately to keep up with her, you know, and I was still in my 20s then and in really good shape because I, you know, I was a big runner at the time. And um, but I was still, you know, sucking wind trying to keep up with her. Wow. But uh, she was cool, you know, super duper charismatic. It's so, interesting as a, as a runner like yourself to realize the different kind of fitness in going up manhood. That would be really confronting to think you've got some fitness on you and then you watch this person who's got just great technique just kind of fly up there <laughs> yeah no kidding and all the other thing is that i'm also desperately afraid of heights uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. oh yeah yeah, don't look all the way down. I'm just going to get back to music before we get to the book, because I have to ask you one musician question. Uh, so I, just, I should probably mention, Peter and I played in a band together, so Peter and I are both know each other as musicians. And so uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, you know how there's like a small segment of bands where, whether you even like them or not, everybody who's a musician knows that the band's good? Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. like like James Brown's band, for example. Like, everybody yeah. knows, I mean, they're amazing. They're so good that like Elvis tried to borrow them. And James said, like, no. So I've always gotten the impression that the E Street Band is one of those bands. Like every time I've ever seen them, I've I've kind of turned my head like, whoa, mm -hmm. what was that? I mean, this may sound silly, but what, what did you think? Were they like that? Were they that like, whoa, I can't stop focusing on these guys are that good? Yeah, they're all great musicians, you know, I mean, and the other thing about them is that Bruce is like a. You know, he is like James Brown in in being a drill, you know, a, a drill sergeant of oh. those guys. And so, you know, one of the reasons why they're so tight is because he runs an extremely tight ship. You know, and I had all those guys talk about like the one thing you didn't want was to miss a cue or something and have Bruce shoot you that look. Wow, that's just like James Brown. Yeah, yeah, because he would, <laughs> you know, he turns around and he just glares at you because when he puts his hand up, that means everybody stops on a dime. And so if you're in that band and you're on stage with them, it's like if, you're, if your eyes are not fixed on Bruce, you're going to get in trouble. You know, and, and Max Weinberg told me that, um, you know, the drummer. Yeah, that, he's amazing. That, yeah, but his thing is that he says that he watches Bruce so carefully that he can tell by the motion of his trapezius muscle what song he's about to start. <laughs> 
That is so cool. But you know, there is something to that. I mean, without getting too far into this, performing with people live, so much of it is is visual. I mean, so mm-hmm. much of the band working together the way it's supposed to. Sound, it's vision, it's 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 not just you can't really just sit there and, you know, look at the neck of your guitar or stare down at your snare drum or, you know, your keyboard or whatever and and be in a band well. Uh, it, it just unless you've played with the same guys so many times, you know they're going to repeat themselves. But anyway, that's super. Yeah, yeah. It is. And as someone who's not a musician to hear you guys talking about that, it, it gives live performance and music a totally different dimension. I mean, I am completely not musical, but I love, you know, I'm on Spotify and what have you. But to get those little insights to go, oh, imagine that. Imagine the, you know, the drummer, the guitarist, you know, looking at the lead singer and being able to just through body language go, okay, here we go. That's just mm-hmm. so cool to hear. Yeah. I, 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 can, we, can we launch off into Sonic Boom, the book? Because it's brilliant, Peter, and I want to understand how you got interested in in that story. Well, you know, I, well, first of all, thank you, and um, and second of all, you know, I was aware of Warner Brothers and Warner Reprise, as it was known back in the day, as being kind of different from the other labels going back to like 1969 1970 when i was like you know six seven years old because my dad had ordered one of their double disc sampler albums which they called lost leaders Mm. and the uh and he brought it home and i was like a big i had been a big Beatles fan since i was about three so i listened to a lot of you know as much popular music as i could get my hands on and you know in our house that was Beatles records and like monkeys records and you know maybe i bought one or two other records by then but but you know that was kind of my thing and I listened to you know my brother was older so we listened to a lot of AM radio up in our room but there was something really funky and cool about you know it was this wildly diverse collection of different artists and songs you know it was just essentially what they would do is is put together these double sampler albums with one or two tracks from a whole lot of their artists and so the, the record we had had like Peter Paul and Mary on it and a weird, you know, synthesizer instrumental by Van Dyke Parks, but then also Frank Zappa and Neil Young doing Cinnamon Girl and a couple Joni Mitchell songs and a couple other, and it was just this bizarre thing. And then, and then the liner notes were really, really funny. But what was clear to me was it, it just seemed to me at the time, you know, my parents were these kind of bourgeois hippies, and so kind of, you know, grew up in that counterculture vibe of the late 60s early 70s and i really believed that as these the young people got older and that they were going to take over you know that the world was going to change and that you know the richard nixons and the people with slicked back hair were going to disappear and be replaced by funky long hairs with beards and stuff <laughs> and part of the evidence for that as far as i could see was the fact that here was this record company that was clearly run by these kind of sardonic sarcastic hippies you know i mean on those the sleeve note where they talked about the other uh, lost leader record. This guy, the guy Stan Corn, and their advertising director wrote this hilarious essay talking about how talking up these albums and why they only cost two dollars. It's because this benevolent record company, you know, and the artists believe that the music should get out there and blah 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 blah. And then he goes like, "But if you're as suspicious of major record companies as we feel, you have every right to be." You know, <laughs> he goes, "We are not 100% benevolent." You know. Know, because actually what our hope is is that you're going to get turned on to these artists and then go and buy their own records at actual market prices you know and so I was aware of that and kind of and then as time went on I began to realize that like a significant number of records that I owned you know probably maybe half of all the albums I owned and I owned a lot of albums were by bands that were 
from Warner Reprieves. But, you know, and it was everything from James Taylor and Joni Mitchell to the Beach Boys 70s records and then Fleetwood Mac and then Prince and then R.E.M. And, you know, the replacements were on Sire, but that was a Warner label. And Little Feet and, and band after band after band of my most favorite bands. I couldn't help but think when I was reading the intro and getting the premise of the book that it reminded me of something that I had heard recently on one of Rick Rubin's podcasts. He's got that Broken Record podcast. Mm-hmm. And it seems like I listen to that a lot. And it, it sounds like a, there's a real echo that you'll hear from him and a lot of these other extremely successful producers is, is that they start talking about how once you try to start formulaically creating the song is when you know it's going to go bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you can just tell nobody knows how it works, but at some point these great musical ideas come to people. And when you can create an environment to nurture it, mm-hmm. you can just have this amazing stuff. And it sounds like what these guys did that was so smart was that they, they weren't going to shun the business piece of it. It's just that part of their business model is like, go get the good stuff. And yeah. Don't worry about copying people. I mean, I was, I looked at the list and I, I don't think I actually had made the correlation that there's this many. I mean, Van Halen was on there. It's extraordinary. Uh, Madonna was on there. Jimi Hendrix. It's amazing. They must have, I mean, what's the, what is one of the things that you, I mean, like maybe a little artifact from the book? To me, I mean, the turning point in the company, you know, they founded, it was actually Warner Reprise or, you know, what, what became Warner Brothers Records was two different labels. Warner Brothers Records, which was founded by Jack Warner, the movie guy, in 1958, and Reprise Records, which was, you know, a boutique label that Frank Sinatra founded in 1960. Because he, you know, a label for himself and for jazz and pop musicians from his generation that he really, really admired. He wanted it to be like Verve Records, which was the best jazz label there was. Yeah, yeah. And and that and that's where Mo Austin started his career in music, just because he happened to know the brother of the guy that was the founder of Verve. But the only thing about those two labels is that both of their founders, Sinatra and Jack Warner, hated rock and roll. And so they started in the business in the late 50s, early 60s, saying no rock and roll, which was a terrible commercial decision because rock and roll was everything at that time. Uh, and, and rock and roll was about to become pop music, basically, right? Essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so eventually they loosened up a little bit. By 1967, Mo and, uh, and his sort of fellow executive, Joe Smith, kind of got control of the, the labels. Mo was was reprise. By this point, they had merged and they were kind of twin labels. And the company was called Warner Reprise. And Joe was Warner Brothers. And they, you know, Joe signed the Grateful Dead in the fall of 66. And then and then Mo found Jimi Hendrix through British music magazines when he'd only had like a single out and signed him. And so by mid-67, they were beginning to cook. You know, after the Monterey Pop Festival, the guy that had sort of been their boss, who was in charge of basically had the final say on a and finally went to them and said, I don't know what's going on anymore, but you guys obviously do. Mm. You just take over <laughs> A&R. And the first thing that Mo did is that he went down to, you know, the A&R staff, the people who found the artists and produced the records and all of everything. And he said, and this was the turning point. He says, guys, I need you to stop trying to make hit records. Let's just make good records and turn those into hits. The love and money, holy grail, as you talk about early on in business, 
in an entrepreneurism, you've got venture capital companies who come and try and find the winner and they, they have that very short term, we'll make 10 bets and two might work sort of thing. And it, it seems like such an oil and water combination in something as so creative as music to try and make a business out of it. Their long-term view is so rare. The amazing thing to me was not only that these other companies would, would look at them and like, what do they know that we don't? And then and then they would lay it out. It's like, well, you know, you got to trust, you got to put the art first. You got to put the music it's a, first. It's a cultural difference. So that's why they probably couldn't copy it. Well, right? yeah. And then they would just sort of say, huh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Peter, uh, we cannot wish you more than everything we've got because we just looked at your advance copy and wouldn't stop reading it, basically. Best of luck on the tour. I'm sure you're disappointed that you don't get to do some of this in person, probably. I'm presuming you're going to be doing a lot of stuff online. Is that right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not really a good risk reward on the flying right now. No, it's all, it's all, all, and plus also, where are you going to go where anyone's going to come out? You know, everyone's too, everybody's too worried for their own heads but uh as well they should be so so here i am in in my dining room thanks so much for taking the time peter it was great talking with you my pleasure guys thanks for having me it's been a lot of fun thanks so much wow peter what a what an amazingly accomplished guy I, i just can't believe how much that guy has had to learn to be able to write about that subject. Oh, the depth, exactly. The depth of knowledge is awesome. It remind, it, you think about journalism and that skill and becoming a storyteller, but just the idea of following Bruce Springsteen and the whole thing was fantastic. Yeah. You know, I, I, I also think from a business perspective, I am just fascinated by the whole idea that a massive major corporation felt comfortable that they had the pieces in place to put basically a, um, a culture together that could be like an indie. Most of the time, the way the person that serves that purpose or the entity that serves the artist focused person is, you know, an indie label. And for whatever reason, they could do it at scale. It's just, it's fascinating. Very interesting. And it also, it seems apparent that it's, it's fleeting, right? You can only do it as long as you have the right people in place that are keeping that culture going. So true. It's fascinating. It's so Particularly when you think of something as creative as music, trying to make it a business. And, you know, we've seen in the past labels that I think formulaic, you think of the boy bands or the girl bands, and it's like, we need this kind of person and this kind of person, and they do that. uh, It's completely manufactured, and it's a little bit like... Can you fit into this costume? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so really, really fascinating. Well, listen, first of all, Jason and I want to just reach out to the listeners and say, you guys are so awesome. The the participation we've been getting lately and the the numbers we've been getting lately, they're all very humbling and awesome. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's been epic. Please leave, leave a review, uh, subscribe, tell your friends, tell 10 friends. We are just so amazed at how many folks have, have downloaded and listened to us banging on about stuff each week. So yeah. thank you so much. Plus, now that Jason's got free vodka, I mean, what, you know, what what's next? I think we need to do a giveaway. Who would like to do a giveaway <laughs> vodka? <laughs> I think we better. I think we better talk to our lawyers first. All right. <laughs> <laughs> may not be legal at all. Oh, that's know. a good point. Oh, I didn't think yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, we got we got Australian law. We got to cover. We got, yeah. okay. Anyway, shipping alcohol. Uh, yeah. Who knows? Anyway, well, hey, thanks everybody. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Joining us at the Recombobulator Lab with Chris Dominic and Jason Graham Nye. Catch you next time.